permanece a mi lado cuando se apague mi luz y la sangre se arrastre y mis nervios se alteren con punzadas dolientes y el corazón enfermo y las ruedas del ser giren lentamente permanece a mi lado cuando a mi frágil cuerpo le atormenten dolores que alcanzan la verdad y el tiempo maníaco sigue esparciendo el polvo y la vida furiosa siga arrojando llamas permanece a mi lado cuando vaya apagándome y puedas señalarme el final de mi lucha y el atardecer de los días eternos en el bajo y oscuro borde de la vida Hello there and welcome to Pivotal Film. I am Tom Nolan. And I'm Mario Ponzio. And this is episode 68. And my co-host has bad taste in cereal. You I know that? I don't have bad no. taste in cereal. I yeah. have universally, widely yeah. recognizes the correct taste as cereal. I disagree vehemently. So, as some people may know in this podcast, just because we make a lot of dink sounds or whatnot, I'm a big fan of, of Good Mythical Morning because I'm apparently 16 or 15 years old and watch YouTube videos like all. Oh, What's Good Mythical Morning? The YouTube show where these two 41-year-old guys do various goofy things. And last week they did a serial March Madness, March mm-hmm. Milkness as they called it. And the winner was Cinnamon Toast Crunch, which I despise. Tom says I'm wrong. Why do you despise? Oh, because of the mouthfeel. The Do you mouth prefer feel? the Captain Crunch mouthfeel to Cinnamon Toast Crunch? No, mouthfeel? I like I like a branny mouthfeel, like a brand sort of mouthfeel, or like the mouthfeel you get with like a. Do you a, like, like life? Do you like grape nuts? I like grape nuts. I do like grape nuts. Uh, so my favorite weird. cereal though is cherry almond pecan from Quaker, hmm. which is really good. Maybe wow. Maybe one week we're gonna get some cereals instead yeah. of beers. We'll just get cereals <laughs> and just <laughs> crunch on them, boy. <laughs> No, we'll, we'll pour beer in them. We'll get when the winter comes back. We'll get some stouts or no, porters. No, no. Here's what we'll do. So to make sure that the pouring beer in the cereal is contextually perfect, we will stay up all night drinking, not doing the podcast. Wake up, pour beer in the cereal, and, and do the is podcast. This, is this something you've done? Sure. Oh, I've never done this. Oh, you gotta. You gotta maybe, do it. maybe we'll do that for our Avengers episode. Unfortunately, the episode we had today is not talking about Avengers. It's talking about another film. But before we talk about that film, Tom has a beer for oh, us. Oh, yeah. So this is um, a Jack's Abbey beer. Um, Jack's... Well, Springdale. Springdale is a, a well, Spring... cohort of Jack's Abbey, but it's kind yeah. of an offshoot. It's well, more it, says their kind of like... it says it's their experimental yeah. like, offshoot. Springdale's technically a different brewery. The experimental I mean, offshoot of Jack's Abbey Brewing. Yeah. Um, they are out of uh, Framingham, Massachusetts, which is within our... That are boundaries. There's we've a, had, we've had a see. few Framingham beers. Uh, last, um, week, last week we had a, what, South Deerfield, Massachusetts beer Deerfield, well? yeah. yeah. Um, so we're sticking with Mass. So this is the Elder Mother. It is an oak-aged sour with elderberries and long pepper. 
It is a what 7.3 is, alcohol by volume. What is a long pepper? I don't know, but it says it is uh, long. We added pepper. elderberries and long pepper for a mysterious, oh. deeply fruity, and complex beer. So it's a flowering vine. A long pepper has a taste similar to, but is hotter than um, the peppercorn that you're typically used to of white, black, and green. Um, but it is it is a peppercorn, so it's supposed to have, should have a more of a spicy taste. They're often confused, apparently, with uh, chili peppers, um, which belong to the capsum family sure, genus. Sure, yeah. uh, these are not in the capsum genus; they are in the piper genus. Ooh, all right. That's a. This is a deep, deep purple color. Yeah. You got you took the you took the nice little photo of this one? I did. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. sour. But you do get that pepper forwardness, that spicy a bit of that spice to that pepper. That's good. That's really That's good. good beer. You're not a sour guy though. No, but it's um I do enjoy it's sours are interesting in the sense that like right off the bat I don't love them. But as I drink them, my palate starts to kind of conform to the taste of it and I Find them very drinkable. What? Uh, I was reading something, and it's unrelated to what we're doing. <laughs> Mario gave it a thumbs down, and I was concerned. Um, speaking of thumbs downs, we just watched Pet Cemetery. I remember my birthday party. Church was out on the road. Everything went black. It's okay now. Are you back? Back from where? We we did. We we saw Pet Cemetery. Um, not the 1989 version. The 2019 version that just came out, starring Jason Clark, who people keep casting in movies for. I mean, <laughs> no particular reason. Jason Clark wasn't horrible in this one. I mean, he's, I typically agree with you in his, his badness. By the way, I like that Larry Mam- Lambert, who directed the original, has gone on to direct such great films now as Mega Python vs. Gatorade. I saw that. Gatoroid. Um, it also stars uh, Amy Simons, John Lithgow, uh, Jete Lawrence uh, as Ellie Creed, who turns out to be the big, you know, the big difference in this one versus uh, the yeah. old one. Gage, um, Gage gets to just sit there and look scared a lot at, at a ghost. Yeah, or Gage also gets the sitcom treatment where he's like not in most of the movie, but then when he's needed, they're just like, oh, engage. Engage <laughs> is here. Don't forget. Um, it's roughly, I mean, it's the same basic storyline. The Creeds, Lewis, Rachel, uh, Ellie, and Gage move to Ludlow, Maine, so Lewis can start his job as a university uh, physician. Um... They have a cat named Church. It dies. They bury it in a pet cemetery. It comes back to life and is evil. Uh, one of their kids gets hit by a car or, or a tanker truck. Uh, by the way, bury it in the ground. She by the way, I, I had I I I'd read the comment on the on 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 the the tanker truck scene. There was a lot of talk in early reviews of this film about how like it, brutal and like aggressive it was with its violence and like it has the most subdued child being hit at full speed in the face with a tanker truck <laughs> and there's like blood on the ladder but then it cuts the girl's fit to um ellie's face and you know she's fine and when she's like resurrected she has 
a slight little damage little to her eye. eye. Not only is her face fine, though, Mario, her whole body is aligned properly. Yeah. But she just got hit by a speeding tanker truck. I mean, not only should her body not be aligned properly, it shouldn't be together. I mean, Church, who, who got kind of sideswiped by a truck, we can assume, is fucked up throughout the entire movie. Like He's, he's little, in rough shape. Yeah. Ellie just has a slightly cute, droopy eye. And she's got a vascular problem a little bit. Oh, right. She's yeah. a little veiny in the face. But other than that, she's good. She just needs to get some sun. She's a little pale. Yeah. Um, Do you know it's not good? This Pet movie, cemetery. This movie kind of was bad. Um, I mean, it's it was, hard to talk about because it's so boring. It is really boring. It's funny in spots because of its badness. Like, there's a couple of, um, like, where they just kind of play with horror tropes or, like, no. scary movie tropes, like the lightning when they go up to, <laughs> when they're going yeah, to bury so, church. Like, why is there so much lightning all of so a sudden? So my problem, my I knew this movie was going to be bad from the first moments because having been a fan of, of just new, you know, re, you, you people know on this podcast that you like horror, horror is my yeah. thing. It starts out with, you know, a drive to a new location with some cute... That's never little, happened before. That, some cute little dialogue about with a dad telling a nice little dad joke. And then they get to the house. And then the wife, you know, the husband has to make some like, oh, my back. And then the wife has to have a phone conversation with her mother mm-hmm. that's obviously interrupted by a past trauma. And then she says, I have to call you back. I knew from there, I was like, oh, this movie is hitting every single trope in horror. Yes. And I was hoping for some sort of attempt at a subversion or some some attempt of like digging into it cuz um these two uh Kevin Colch's and um Dennis Widmer's last movie uh I think it was A Starry Eyes. Um you know it was known for like how like it kind of like leaned into the tropes it was doing and and um whatnot. And and like how kind of not really brutal but interesting it was um i i'd actually never seen it but so i was expecting something with that especially with the reviews for this but this just continuously is the 1989 pet cemetery with you know a more refined more refinement less hokiness of yeah it's the dead ghost and that's i mean i would i don't even i don't even know if this movie is really worth like commenting all that extensively on it's a fairly standard issue horror movie with um where a dumb waiter plays a lot more significant a role than you would think a dumb waiter should play in a horror movie it's also an electric dumb waiter it's not even one of those pole dumb waiters you know with like the rope which in halloween h2o because tom incorrectly assumed that this was the only horror movie with a nice little focus on a yeah, dumb that was dumb Halloween H two O has that, and I believe actually no, that is also electric. Now that I think about it, that's weird. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess strange. I guess at some point during the mid middle of the century, we upgraded. But yeah, to regardless. I mean, I think the thing that's interesting about this, the thing that's interesting about this movie compared to the old movie in the book is what they kind of left out. So they left out um, the weird emasculation subplot that was in that was rife in the book and is because Stephen King wrote the screenplay to the original movie, is present in the movie as well. Where, like, um, Lewis really doesn't want to get 
church fix because they think that it'll keep him from running across the road, but he doesn't want to cut his balls off. And, like, there's all this infighting with, like, between him and his wife about not just death, like you said, or religion or how to explain death to kids, but just kind of everything. Like, who's actually wearing the pants in the family. They get rid of all that stuff, which is awesome. That was a really smart idea because that was a really stupid thing in the book. Um, they also get rid of all of the really awkward um, Stephen King cliché um, graveyard scenes where it's just 50 pages of of Lewis digging up his daughter and having, you know, hurting his ankle and, you know, having to, how am I going to do this? And I'm going to, oh, a tree miraculously fell out of that sky. Yeah. I can climb over this fence and all this gonna other stuff. There's going to be a lot of lightning. It's just, it's, it's ridiculous. The book is ridiculous. What? The first movie is ridiculous. And this movie leaves a lot of that ridiculous stuff out, but doesn't... Except leave, for the lightning storm. Except for the lightning storm. And just... And, and why fog. Did, why fog. did they shoot all of the... Like, if they're doing this in Maine, I don't know if they've ever been to Maine, but there's a lot of woods in Maine. You could just go fucking shoot in the woods. No. Why are they doing this on sets? These, this movie, by the way, is rife with CGI where it doesn't need it. Like, there is multiple sequences of showing the woods that are clearly CGI scenes. And you're yeah. sitting there, or at least, you know, touched up by well, CGI. Well, it's like a set. And it it's is a set in front of a green screen. Painful. Like, why? There's gotta be some place in, in Maine where you could but bury stuff. But if we're talking about things that it mentioned from the book, let's talk about nice little deep dive into the Wendigo story. Oh, yeah. Mentioning that there must be a Wendigo and then showing a Wendigo. Look, it's never a, it's a book. diving at all into like what the folklore of a Wendigo represents. There's none of that like you get the tattered and bloodiness and like the corruption and whatnot, but there's no like that that gluttony or greed aspect or that excess. it's just kind of Yeah, I mean I mean King didn't really do that either, but it's it's so utterly kind of painted on this. We were like, hey guys, we we talked about the Wendigo. Yeah, John John Lithgow, who was uh, you know okay in, in in like a fairly thankless role. Yeah, there's um, a couple there, that, that that fire scene. He's he's doing work when nobody else in this movie did any work. Yeah, and I felt bad for John Lithgow in that moment. I actually felt bad for bad for John Lithgow a lot in this movie. I thought it was weird when like at the birthday party, John Lithgow's the first person to congratulate Ellie. I was like. I'm pretty sure this is her whole family, and her parents are right here, and he's the first well, one to say anything to her. The one thing I found a little interesting, and I wish they had gone a little further into it, but they, they didn't. They, they pulled back. Was at least they made Lewis into a real piece of shit, which I, I kind of liked. In, in like, regards like he's to just, what? He's, he's pretty cold and distant mm-hmm. early on. He's, he's kind of, you know, he's matter-of-fact and dismissive of his wife. Um mm-hmm. And kind of like the, the, the elements of like raising her. But then, you know, really heavily just being totally indifferent to drugging um, Judd. And then being very much like, this is fine. Like, Well, that really means, so, I mean, it's clear when, so in the book and in the first movie, Gage gets hit by a truck and Gage dies. And they bring Gage back to life. In this movie, Ga- spoiler Spoilers, alert, Gage lives. Gage lives. And joins the Avengers, as I, as I told Tom. <laughs> Which is very funny. Um, Ellie Ellie dies, and uh, they bring Ellie back to life, and it's pretty clear, pretty quickly that this is not gonna go the way that Lewis thinks it's gonna go. But he's okay with it. I think he just, just if he just hopes a lot, it's it'll all work out. It's all gonna work out. There's some interesting character inconsistencies too, 
they do a lot of digging early on into Lewis's character of like that entire like discussion of the afterlife, but still like there's a weird curiosity and fear with him, mm-hmm. especially after seeing Victor. I don't know. For some reason, I think he would have questions for Ellie when she was resurrected. Considering she knows, she seems to know some stuff. Yeah. Like, there's still that curiosity with him. Well, so here's, I mean, here's an interesting thing. I read, you mentioned the jaunt last week, and I actually went and got the skeleton. It's, I read out of the library, read the jaunt. Good. It's fucking good. It's, it's, it's good. It's good. It's good. It's scary. Meh, it's, it is what it is. Um, for some reason, um, eternity's always scared yeah, me. So yeah. like that, that me and me. Old King are not, like, best friends. Um, so you're just not a cocaine guy? I, I like cocaine. <laughs> um, but he's, I, the jaunt is really good. Because the really scary thing that happens, you don't see any of it. Yeah, it's, it's, great, cos- it's great cosmic horror. Exactly. And there's an opportunity in here, and it's kind of in the book as well, and it's not, it may be in the first movie, but it's hard to tell it's because not it's in so the ridiculous. Movie. It's not, nothing's um, in the first movie. They no, may have seen some shit. The one thing in the first movie that's great, that makes this, the first movie, so much better than this one, is Gage going, not fair. Not fair. Well, yeah, Gage has a lot to say in the first movie, and in this movie, he that has kid's very re- little to say. That kid's really good in the first movie for being like sure. three or four. Yeah, Gage is Gage is kind of weird. He's a weird presence in that movie. Yeah, that kid was um, unsettlingly good. But you're saying about the the entire. But they don't do. They there's don't, an opportunity for that in this whole. Entity, you know what I mean? Like the book and the first movie and this movie. And that's why I don't understand why. I mean, one of the things that I, I mentioned off the air that I wanted to talk about was like this kind of like sacredness that Pet Cemetery has taken on, where people are writing articles about how it's King's most horrifying book or it's his scariest book. And, you know, is it finally going to get the film treatment it deserves? And obviously, it didn't get the film treatment it deserves. And I don't think it's the scariest book either. I feel like it's a book and subsequently has been made into two movies that are really big missed opportunities to really explore something really interesting um, that they just kind of don't do it because it's uh, it's cooler to just have a kid yelling obscenities at a, a grown up, right? I mean that's I mean that's what the that's what the book boils down to. Also, is Gage just kind of storming into Judd's house and telling? Judd what a slut his wife is and like all this other stuff it's like oh why is that more interesting than finding out like what death is like yeah or especially that person come back and being like fucked up specifically because they got to experience death especially when it's like you you have this element of trying to like play into it but instead it's just used for like you're gonna suffer and it's like that's not interesting and that's what makes me like all these attempts to kind of do the cosmic horror of king have failed um and Cosmic Horror in general just, just fails. Unless you're John Carpenter doing In the Mouth of Madness. You can't do, nobody can do Cosmic Horror. Like, I'm really intrigued to see what Josh Boone, you know, the director of Fall of Our Stars, does with Revival. Which, I mean, Revival 100% loses its Cosmic well, Horror when, because, as as, when you see giant ants and a right, spider. As soon as God King decides, I'm going to show it to you. You're just like, nope. You're just, and he just is like, listen, no, 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 it's awesome. The ant's gonna come out of her mouth, and you're just like, no, but I don't care anymore. I don't care. Yeah, I don't want. It was I don't... interesting when it was just a door <laughs> framed by ivy, and that was it. Yeah, and I don't want to see the ant come out of the mouth. And like, like all, this, we're gonna quickly get off because Pet Cemetery is really boring. Don't don't see it. it yeah, this conversation is way now, more interesting than. The we're movie. now gonna talk about revival. Yeah. The thing that bugs me about revival is you cut out that chapter where he sees through the door. 
if you cut out like he goes, sees through the door, looks into her mouth, and then jump to all the people killing themselves. Yes, we've had this conversation yeah. before. Well, we're going to have this on air now. Yeah. In case Stephen King's listening, and then he can get, take back all the copies that, and just cut it all out. <laughs> uh, but that is a fucking terror. That's like one of the most terrifying books. Oh, yeah. It's great. Great book. Especially if you just know that he is like afraid but knowing death is coming, but he's seen it, mm-hmm. and he just refuses to talk about it. That's what's great. And that's what's a great thing about, like, In the Mouth of Madness. I really like about The Mouth of Madness is you see the gateway to it. And you see, like, the creatures coming. And it looks kind of hokey, mm-hmm. but still framed in the shadows. And there's still a bit of, like, something you can't conceive. And when you can't conceive something, that's when it becomes scary. Mm-hmm. When it becomes so horrific that's beyond comprehension, then it's scary. Because the mind, the, the viewer, the reader can fill in the blanks about... Well, I think this is pretty scary, but it must, but it doesn't make me go crazy. So it must be worse than this. Mm-hmm. And the problem with like this movie and revivals, the second it shows you, or the second they kind of like make it passe with you know you're gonna suffer for eternity, it's like, well, it doesn't seem that bad now, <laughs> you know, because like you're not really selling it. You're not selling the horror of it. Well, yeah, exactly. So in um, she has he does it better in there's a short story that I really like in just after sunset called N. That he does the same thing. I mean, he, he wants to show it to you the whole time where there's like a pulsing, you know, a uh, gateway that's emerging in a ring of stones and this guy has to go or somebody has to go out, you know, all the time and kind of um, touch the stones and place the stones. And it's kind of a metaphor for like OCD, but not a metaphor because they talk about OCD. In the yeah, book, you know me. But like OCD, yeah, OC, OBB. Um, like, OCD behavior is actually people trying to, like, hold the order of the universe intact to keep whatever's on the other side of, like, the thin scrim of reality um, from bursting through and consuming all of us. That story works because even though we sometimes get to see, like, the three-lobed eye or whatever, or, like, a helmet, whatever, um, he doesn't go so far as to say... Though, and the helmet thing moved, and that person could see deep into like what was on the yeah. other side of reality, and it was this, and that's why, like, thing, and that's why, like, the aspects of of the terror in, in you know the really good King adaptation. Hopefully, it continues on later this year with it. You know, we yes. just see barely the dead eyes, uh, the dead lights. Um, that works cause, well, cause because you could see fur- there's something further beyond that. They but that's not that, just they took the book and they said, "What is the thing that makes this book?" scary and it's like the impending dread of the fact that there's a fucking clown monster out there that's killing kids yeah and they just take out the tim curry screaming obscenities at people and just leave the dread yeah and, and, and that's works and at times they also add in like to to rectify rectify like whatever fear or dread you'd have with like a really fun kind of like fun house haunted house kind of horror movie that's uh, people hated but i thought was a really fun goofy ride until it needs to be kind of like scary and what did they hate who hated it well people no people don't like the fact that's kind of like repeated scenes set pieces of you know each each little like horror for each kid but it works because it's fun it's a really fun movie it doesn't take itself too seriously but it's really earnest and not earnest but it's really honest it with itself yeah. um and this movie just but it, it felt was... this movie was just it, it kind of felt like colch and um it kind of it felt like colch and Windermere kind of like set up a camera and pressed a button and then like 
people they, read lines. Well, and they were just yeah, they flipped to like a page in the book, and they're just like, okay, but just don't say this part. And um, all right, so just start, start reading, just read the book. But we're gonna get the dumb waiter scene in. We, gotta, we all we have to make sure we add a dumb waiter. But we also we have to keep going back to the Zelda, and this feels like it goes back to the Zelda thing far more often than the '89 version did. At yeah. least it's just like a droning. Well, because the '89 version really liked its long flashbacks. Yeah. So. And this one is just kind of like a you know a modern flashback sequence, which just kind of. But it interrupts. It so badly interrupts pacing too in this, and like like those flashbacks are just everything about this movie is just so boring. Yeah, I mean, I, that's what, so that, I think that's what I would say, is stop being so, um, stop treating the text like... It's sacred. It's sacred, and just take from it what you need to convey the thing that you think the book is best at conveying, and then just get rid of the rest of it. So maybe you don't even need the Zelda stuff, or maybe the Zelda stuff is way different, and not just she falls down a door <laughs> to die. You know what I mean? Like, maybe... Because in the book she just dies, like the same thing. The same thing is wrong with her. But in the book she just she just dies, and and Rachel is there when she dies. Um, but take that, take that, the essence of that, and do something different with it. My last question for you: How angry are you that Michael Mann cast Jason Clark in Public Enemies and started this train rolling? I've learned to not expect a lot from Michael Mann. Um, well, I mean, like, but then, what do you think of Oliver Stone casting him? And then Catherine Bigelow. People do weird things. I don't Boz know what, Lerman. I don't know what they see. I don't know what they're looking at. Terrence Malick. Terrence Malick, yeah. I don't know. But Terrence Malick also carried, casted Ben Affleck in a movie, so. I can't. He's, not, he's made He's going to do what he's going to do. He's made However, decisions in However, we will say this. The best, absolute the best part of this movie for me was the trailer for The Dead Won't Die Before It. That looks like it's going to be a lot That's of gonna fun. That's going to be awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even if that yeah. movie's bad, it's going to be fun, I think. It's going to take a lot for that movie to be bad. I don't know why it would be bad. I don't know either. It's got a Scottish Tilda Swinton with long blonde hair who... <laughs> and just just a really, matter, a really matter-of-fact Adam Driver. Oh, Adam Driver's... It's like an Adam Driver renaissance. Yeah, I like it. I like he's it just like taking over everything. We're gonna, we'll, we'll do a deep dive on that one when it comes out. <laughs> Um, but the deep dive on this movie can end with just the fact of, no, just no. Just don't, I mean, I don't know what you're going to do this weekend, because it's either this or Shazam, and I'm definitely not going to tell you to see fucking Shazam. You can watch the first episode of the new Twilight Zone and skip the second one. Even that's not, it's fun, but not deep great. Deep shrug, Mario. Just go see us again. You know what? Or go see Under the Silver, or just Torrent Under the Silver Lake, because apparently, well, Legally fined under the Silver Lake because apparently it's coming on VOD and not in theaters. And this long wait I did instead of buying a Region 2 DVD was for nothing. Don't you feel like an idiot now? Thanks, A24. <laughs> All right, we'll be right back with our number 68s. Welcome back. Um, my number 68 is the Lord of the Rings, the Return of the King. This is your test. Every path you have trod through wilderness, through war, has led to this road. Man, 
enemy will never let Aragorn come to the throne of Gondor. It is time. Give him the sword of the king. Become who you were born to be. The precious sweetie eyes. He needs to murder us! I'm not sending him away. Come to me. The order said the pieces are moving. Directed by Peter Jackson, came out in 2003. It is the third film in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, following The Fellowship of the Ring and The Two Towers. And preceding The Hobbit trilogy. Oh, oh dear. But we're going to talk about, I think the last movie in The Hobbit trilogy is actually really good. I stopped watching those movies after the first The first movie. two movies. The Desolation of Smog is one of the worst movies I've ever seen in my life. And it is supposed to be a really good movie, because Benedict Cumberbatch is the voice of a dragon. Isn't that what makes a good movie? What's the last one called? Battle of Five Armies? The Battle of Five Armies. Yeah. And it's really good. For the same reason that this movie is really good. Um, this movie was nominated for 11 Academy Awards and won them all. It won all 11 Academy oh, Awards I it was forgot. nominated oh, for. I actually forgot about that. Um, I remember being so upset. Which everyone kind of agrees that it was a, you know, a... Collective. Collective for the last three years. I mean, so Fellowship of the Ring and The Two Towers were both nominated for Best Picture. He only got nominated for Best Director once um, for this. Um, But it won everything else. Um, You know, Director, Adapted Screenplay, Score, Original Song, um, which was Annie Lennox's song and not Enya's song, which is a bummer. No, he was was nominated for for Fellowship. Fellowship He was nominated for Fellowship. Oh, he was. Okay. Um, Art direction, costume design, makeup, sound, blah, blah, blah. Um, what happens in the Lord of the Rings, the return of the king, uh, Frodo and Sam and Gollum, Smeagol, acted and voice acted by Andy Serkis, um, which made him famous for some reason, um, continue their path to Mordor to throw the ring, the one ring into the, into the fire, um, from which it was forged. Uh, Gandalf and the other hobbits and Aragorn played by Viggo Mortensen and and Legolas played by just a scorching Orlando Bloom who be, went on to do great things like star in Elizabethtown and then nothing King uh, Kingdom of Heaven <laughs> oh right Kingdom of Heaven which is like Stan says the one movie that sure, yeah, yeah, everyone yeah. says like this is a shitty movie and then they see the director's cut and like this is one of the greatest movies we've ever seen is that true yeah people f- I've never seen the director's cut we'll, but have, people to, we'll have to do a it. special episode of the director's cut uh, of I don't want to yeah, King- Christian Bale have you seen Kingdom of Heaven Christian Bale is Egyptian have you seen Kingdom of Heaven no wait no you're thinking of you're not. You're thinking of Exodus. Oh right, Kingdom Isn't, of Kingdom of Heaven was the Crusade. I don't know, man. Uh, you're thinking of the, uh, the Kingdom of Heaven is a Crusades movie with Edward Norton. Oh sure, the Ridley Scott. Well, that's also Exodus is also a Ridley Scott film. Okay, we're off topic appropriately now. Um, I'm not even going to bother going into you. Just if you really don't know what the Lord of the Rings is about, just go look it up or just. Figure out what you had been doing with yourself in 2003 and just consider how this movie probably fit into your life. And I'm sure you'll have recollections of having gone to see it with everybody else in the universe because these movies made a shit ton of money. I saw none of these movies in theaters. Really? Why? I hate fantasy with an undying passion. And it's interesting because I feel about science fiction... 
I love how like fiction. you yeah. feel about fantasy. So I'm much because I want my fantasy to be. I want these things to be totally detached from reality. I find my enjoyment of them much more. Um, I like I like Harry Potter. Sorry, I like Harry Potter. The movies. The movies and the I books think, are fine. So the I movies, think, I like the movies. Oh, a lot. see, I think the movies are trash, but the books I, like the I think first, are really good. Like five movies, and then the last three are. I refuse to acknowledge the existence of Deathly Hollows because I think that's shit. The book, anyway. I actually don't think why the book is good. Um, no, it's not. Why is it good? Well, for one thing, Half Blood Prince and Deathly Hollows both introduce an entirely new subject, significant subject matter, in what would be the third act of a series, which you should never do. Sure, sure, sure. Which is the Horcruxes. Secondly, it's super safe. Everything it does is safe. Thirdly, it kills a bunch of characters off screen with no sort of gravity or ethos or purpose and it's just it doesn't even like lean into the abject stupidity of what has happened not stupidity but the abject like worthlessness of what has happened or like the the cruelty of all it just they die because jk rowling needed to throw some shit in there there's (laughs) random sequences of you know harry potter during his death sequence having that moment of clarity and he's a shit fucking character throughout that entire series and him and Ginny are not even really a good couple yet they force that together jk rawlings is an idiot <laughs> she, she can't be an idiot she's like the opposite of an idiot well she's wealthy you could be wealthy and an idiot but she i mean uh, so i think it's funny because i think you're right sorry jk rawling you're probably a really nice person she's, i think she's all right yeah i think I, I actually th- I say idiot with, with, with love. I agree with you. I think everything you kind of said is right. I think when you're reading them, though, if you are... She does uh, great world building, though. Give that's, that. what, that's what I'm saying. So when you're reading them, you're just kind of... You're in it, and you ignore the fact... I mean, until I got to King's Cross, like the end of that... You know, the second to last chapter, whatever. The, the first... Or the Deathly Hallows, when they're in King's Cross Station, Dumbledore is all of a sudden just, like, alive in Harry's mind, and he's naked and whatever. It's just like, well, what? Oh, because you have to explain everything. Of course, of course. Let's just do this. Exposition bomb. Um, but talking of Lord of the Rings. No, I was trying to tie it together, and I don't know if I could tie it together. I think the thing that I didn't like about those Harry Potter movies is, besides the fact that they stink, is that they're not exciting at all. Like, there's no excitement to them. They're I found, very safe. I found reading the books um, really exciting. And, like, every new piece of information that got dropped, I was like, oh, wow. That's really that cool. All right, um, and not to say that there's an equivalent here in um, the movie of the Return of the King, but in a fantasy th- situation, especially in a movie, I want to feel excited. And I think the reason this is a pivotal film is I distinctly I saw all of these movies in theaters on opening night, um, and this was back when the opening night showing was. Like really late. Remember, remember when opening night showings were not Thursday at six in the afternoon. Yeah, remember that for every movie that came out. And midnight showings were only for event films, right? And so this is an event film. And so when, when that <laughs> Pet Cemetery, key event film, Pet Cemetery and Shazam, lots of people in the theater for that one today. Um, when that, when that, that Lord of the Rings theme like. And it comes out, and I was like, mm. it's like, ah. and then when, like, uh, you know, the Rohirrim come, and you know, 
uh, Minas Tirith is like about to fall, and then here comes Rohan riding up, and they he just yells a bunch of shit at his warriors, and they ride into the orcs, and they just kill everybody. Like, inexplicably, there's like 3,000, you know, uh, Rohan riders, and there's all these, <laughs> there's like countless orcs, and for some reason they kill everybody. Oh, but then these eastern sea peoples come with the elephants. Um, and then, and then... Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli come with the ghosts, and the ghosts swarm everything, and I was doing this a lot, Mario. I was like, yeah. Mm. I was super pumped up, and I don't feel that a lot in movies. I don't know if you feel that a lot in movies, where you're just like, yeah. Mm. It's very satisfying. And I think this is um, a pivotal film because it was, it speaks directly to that kind of satisfaction. You know, I've been watching these movies for three years, and I really like them, and I understand that a lot of people don't like them, and we can talk about that in a little bit. Um, and for different reasons. I don't, I don't think you like them aesthetically and, and all the other stuff. I think a lot of people that are Tolkien people dislike them from what he, for what Peter Jackson added and what he left out. Um, I'm not a Tolkien person. I couldn't make it through these books. They're super fucking boring. Um, but it was, very, it was a very satisfying ending to this story. Um, with Saruman's Sarah, crashing onto the like little stone piece or whatever that was satisfying what no no I mean, you know what's that like not even that was actually the one part of because i watched the extended version um for some ungodly reason and uh just christopher lee crashing oh yeah that. yeah, yeah, like, yeah that's right yeah, yeah. <laughs> i was <just> like <laughs> um that's excellent well so it's i mean it's a weird thing about this movie too because sometimes the special effects are amazing and sometimes the special effects are t- are really bad, like the ghost army. Like, well, the ghost army, or when they're riding up to like the black gate, and like they're just kind of sliding on the ground, even though they're like their horses' legs are are, are moving. Like the way that the camera which is, moves just makes them kind of like which is like, like they're beyond the aesthetic. One of my big problems with this movie is how much it does lean into that CGI oh, in yeah. long takes, and it's just like but it some looks of it- like. But some of it is really good. Like it's Gandalf fine. riding to the top of Minas Tirith is an amazing shot. Yeah, that's that's fine. But like it ha- it suffers from a lot of those problems that was happening in the late '90s, early 2000s for me, where they had the technology had finally reached that point where they could do it, so they had to. So do they it. could do something, so they just did, did it anyway. Everything. And yeah. we're gonna talk I mean, about that. Like, we're gonna like talk a, about that with your movie. It's not in an a Attack of the Clones sort of situation where everything was CGI. But no. there's definite moments where it's like, you know, bring the camera in close. Hire like two hundred extras, and we'll get the same idea. And just of scope. kind of do it, yeah. Like yeah. Do a quick establishing shot of CGI, and then get in close. Right. Um, I didn't worry about that. I was super pumped up by this movie. Um, I thought it ended great. Um, I thought the fact that it just kept going and going and going was awesome. Um, you mentioned the extended scene. I think the extend uh, the extended cut. I'm kind of indifferent to. I'm indifferent to all the extended cuts a little bit. I think the Fellowship of the Ring extended cut is worthwhile in the sense that. Um, you kind of want to be in that space for a little bit. It does more world building in terms of like what the Shire is like and like what, um, you know, the Hobbit's life is like, um, and a little bit, a little more myth building. But after that, um, but there's that great scene when the mouth of Sauron comes out to talk to them, um, and that's pure like old school Peter Jackson. I think it's just kind of twisted yeah. that guy's teeth, like how he's moving and stuff. It's really fucked up, um, and I love that scene. Um, but yeah, I mean, we talked about this a little bit when we talked about The Revenant, um, which is a movie we're going to talk about soon. Um, again, 
I mean, I, I guess I go to the movies for lots of different reasons, and I don't get excited at movies like Die Hard and A Lethal Weapon. Um, I just am kind of indifferent to those things. Um, when I get excited at movies, it's in at stuff like this. You know what I mean? Um, and not even sci- like Star Wars doesn't even really do that. Like to me, I remember going to see Attack of the Clones and the Yoda Count Dooku fight, and everyone in the theater was going freaking ape shit. I was laughing my ass off, and I was just like, "What is so it's... stupid?" I was it's... like, "I can't even see him." It's, it's just bad a CGI, green, and it's, it's just like... a green dot. Like, the motion blur in that sequence is also... Like, they had to do motion blur because they didn't have the effects to really cover yeah, or this in, movement. And, or in um, Revenge, is it Revenge of the Sith or is it Attack of the Clones when Yoda has that that fight in the Senate? That's uh, that's uh, the return of the, the Revenge of the Clone. Revenge, Revenge of the, of the Sith. Sith. <laughs> that is just the worst. Just the worst. Well, those, movies, those movies stink. Um... But those are the movies that like people like people were getting pumped up about that stuff, and I was just like, "But I don't get it. Why are we getting pumped up with this blurry, with a blurry Yoda with all we can see is a glowing lightsaber just kind of flying around to Christopher Lee, who which, obviously can't move." Which is interesting because because I have to say, young when I was younger, I didn't get pumped up about these big event movies. I like Independence Day, sure. Independence Day I was really looking forward to. I was ten, um, but like. Lord of the Rings, I was probably in that prime age of being into this. Mm-hmm. Star Wars, I was definitely, the prequels, I was definitely in that prime age of being into it. Mm-hmm. For some reason, that just didn't, did nothing for me. Spider-Man was fun, uh, so I was kind of into those, but not really super. Batman Begins, I was crazy into. Mm-hmm. Um, but these event movies, like, I did, never got the excitement. And, and I don't know mm-hmm. if it's like a part of my brain that doesn't work. I'm super excited for Endgame still. but And that's the thing. I'm, in, I'm, 100, I'm excited for Endgame in the sense that it will be... It will be... Um, well, fun. It'll be fun. Yeah. But I don't care. Like, I don't care if everybody dies. I didn't, <laughs> it doesn't mean anything to me. I mean, we've talked about this before. My favorite Avengers movie is Age of Ultron because I'm pretty sure they didn't want to make any more Avengers movies. And they were just like, you know what we're going to do? Let's just fuck it up. Let's just make the worst movie we could possibly make. And so we don't have to do this anymore. No one wants to do this anymore. Let's just get out of here. We'll just put Jay, we'll give Jay a robot, James Spader's exact voice, and we'll just move on with our lives. And we don't have to do this anymore. And people still went to see that movie. I think Paul Bettany just had it in his contract that he had oh, to keep you, doing those movies. You think it was the Paul Bettany effect? Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. Definitely. Um, we but are now I'm, drinking a beer that we're not going to talk about because we're going to talk about it in a future yeah. episode. Um, I almost didn't. I almost went to a place to get beer that I didn't want to because we were going to be talking about it in a, in a near future episode. Um, yes, I think it'll be satisfying for some people in a way that it won't be satisfying for me. In a way that this was satisfying for me. In a way that um, I thought... Like, Battle of the Five Armies, even though the Hobbit series is god-awful. The Battle of the Five Armies is actually... It's interesting because, you know, it was made ten years after this movie. Uh, maybe even more than ten years after it. So, um, computers had come a long way. So, there's the effects in that movie are ten times what yeah, they those, are those in barrels, this. Those barrels look great. Not the barrels. That's, this is, that's a different movie. The barrels is the worst thing ever. Um, but... It's just, a, it's just an action movie. It's just exciting. It doesn't have, always make sense. It's just fun and it's cool. I don't, always, I don't always have fun in movies, but I had a lot of fun watching these. 
Uh, my problem with this, though, these Lord of the Rings movies, Return of the King, for me, uh, I like Fellowship. Actually, I do really I like, fe- like. Fellowship. I actually think Fellowship of the Ring is probably a better movie because I think Fellowship like breathes a lot. Mm-hmm. This movie is unrelenting at times with how yes. much action's going on. I know. Awesome. I, I get headaches. Like I actually get a headache. Some, and this isn't a criticism. I like. I, it's a criticism in the sense of this is not a movie for me. Sure, it's sure, a sure. really well done. Besides the special effects for me, I think the special effects are a little too much. Um, but it is so unrelenting and never breathes. And I just well, I lose add, like I, I get a headache watching it because I kind of lose track of where I am and, and not what's even that. Going but they on. add like he adds a character in um, Denethor. Like who is just and John Noble just like acts the shit out of this like the you know the steward of Gondor and he's like losing his mind and um you know he tries that's, to that's burn. a pretty that's a pretty good character yeah but that's and that's the thing so even when you like he's introducing a new character he doesn't even give you a chance to breathe then because this guy's fucking crazy and there's craziness happening here um so yeah before we end I just want to shift gears um. And talk about like the uh, one other thing that always always bothered me about this movie. Um, and it's something I thought about in two thousand three when I originally saw it. Um, is that there's a lot of white people in this movie, like all white people in this movie. And having done a little bit of research on some of the Tolkien scholarship about like the books, um, it's a pretty it's pretty well documented that Tolkien hewed to a, a British kind of, you know, contextually appropriate, I guess, you know, I mean, it had, strict it had, colonialism, you know, yeah. attitude towards the rest of the world. Um, and, you know, the Lord of the Rings films did lead, heavily lean in that Northern European, Anglo-Saxon sort of idea. And I've read a couple of articles about the fact that, you know, the the movies are, the movies take place in this very specific area of of the world that Tolkien created, and that in that world, it is representative of, like, Western European peoples, which would be inherently more white. My question, though, is, you know, Peter Can- Peter Jackson's making these movies in, like, the late 90s and the early 2000s. He doesn't have to, I wouldn't think, adhere, considering he hasn't done it through the whole movie, through the whole series, um, he doesn't have to stick strictly to canon, or to what exactly what people expect or want out of these movies, he could have ameliorated this situation very easily by having like a much more diverse cast. Um, and again, this sounds like 2019, you know, culture stuff talking, um, but it, it was something that crossed my mind um, when I watched it in 2003, and it's something that's crossed my mind in every subsequent viewing. Like, I love this movie. There is a lot of <laughs> this brings up a lot of diversity questions. Well, when you mentioned this, I kind of like looked up some stuff, um, and and one of the big, I guess, instances that kind of got buried underneath the um, the carpet was, uh, I guess, a casting director for The Hobbit was fired because she had was caught on video. Um, he or she was caught on video saying, "We are looking for light skinned people. I'm not trying to be whatever. It's just the brief. You got to look like a Hobbit." And the person was fired, and, and Peter Jackson's company said, you know, the crew member in question took it upon themselves to do that. It's not something we instruct or condone. No instructions were given. And this is back in 2010. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there, there's definitely an issue there where does the adhere? And some of the criticism was some of the people that kind of, like, 
criticized the the uproar about that said you can't cast you know a, a, a white person to be shaft and you can't cast a black guy to be king george the six but those are very heavily like one's a historical character one is you know a person who's very delineated by his race but when it's an entire species of creature that isn't really super defined it kind of like rests in that anglo-saxon nature having not really read the it's hobbit defined, but, but also it's knowing also it's fantasy also knowing it's the fucking hob like it's hobbits yeah. in a fantasy world where dragons exist and an eye is sentient like you can you don't have to adhere to this you don't need to and it's like where do you draw the line of like where you have to adhere to the original intention and like oh the original intention is from a person who has been dead half a deck half a century now yeah i mean it, and was from an entirely different world the, the you'll never have a white person play shaft is a stupid thing to say because shaft is representative of something that is very specifically non-white you can have a black guy play king george because people do that shit all the time like all like yeah that's actually really fair shakespeare's whole canon is open to interpretation at this point you could have anybody do anything I mean, I mean, I like one of the things that like bugs me is that there's all these advertisements now for like Glenda Jackson playing King Lear on Broadway, and like, oh, Brenda, Glenda Jackson's playing King Lear. It's like, well, that's awesome because Glenda Jackson is an amazing actress and is age appropriate to play King Lear. Who gives a shit if she's like a woman? She could just be a queen. It's not like a specific male thing. You could just take that aspect out of it and make it representative. Make the character of Leah representative of an age. She's probably going to do a better job than Anthony Hopkins did. Well, because Anthony Hopkins was half dead when he did that. (laughs) I don't know know how he feels today, but obviously when he made that Amazon movie, he didn't feel great. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I don't, I I feel like, you know, it's not like we weren't having somewhat similar conversations in like the late 90s and the early 2000s. Like, does Peter Jackson have to go into this being like, can he actually say, like, we did a thorough casting and they just all ended up this way? I don't know. No, there's even a... Um, there's there's critical backlash of the discriminatory nature. You know, Chicago... I'm reading the Chicago Tribune article from 2003, which says that, you know, that there's, there's, there's kind of like this war against one thing, the war against the other mm-hmm. that kind of goes on, and it's a bunch of white people fighting against very other sort of creatures and and like that has this like weird uh, pretense to it as well like Uh even if that's not the intention when you only cast a very homogenous group of people you're going to create those sorts of questions and then i was reading an article about and i wish i remembered where it was from but i think she was she was a professor of literature in, in scotland or something like that and she was kind of going through all the different races that are represented in the movie um you know, in in the context of the races that are represented in the book, and she's like, oh, these people are from uh, the east, and they represent like Arab peoples, and blah blah blah. And these people are from this, and they represent this, and they all come to the aid of Sauron. They all come to the aid of Mordor. So they're all the evil people, and the Western European people are all the the good people. And my point is that. This stuff existed in when Peter Jackson decided to make these movies. This scholarship, these opinions, these theories, these facts. And he decided to be like, yeah, all right. Yeah, well, there's exactly like the, the instance of like the human um, antagonist 
in the books and like towers and return of the king being um the easterlings and the, the harridim who are very much like middle east when the harridim were really heavily mm-hmm. middle eastern they had turbans they rode elephants in the books and the easterlings wore samurai's helmets and had you know coal black eyes covered by slits mm-hmm. and it's like there's a heavy asian influence that's like oh blonde-haired blue-eyed white people fighting minor fighting other races and And the other races always being the villains right and that's uh my and even if like the books the movies don't so have obviously do not in any way lean into that when you're still casting fair-skinned blue-eyed people for almost all of your main hero roles you're kind of unintentionally perhaps reinforcing those stereotypes and reinforcing those ideas right and maybe people weren't having this exact i mean but i remember when remember when jimmy smith was in star wars people had a lot of questions about the fact that jimmy smith was princess leia's dad like they uh, had a, yeah i didn't they really had follow, a lot of i didn't follow it too much because it's star wars but yeah i understand what you're saying with that um i don't know i mean it's i guess it's a weird note to leave it on but again i would be remiss if i didn't if I didn't bring it up, because it's it's no, played into my thinking. Yeah, exactly. If it was a movie. major role of, of thinking about it, then you have to talk about it. Um, we will be then right back with your number 68. If there's one thing we like to talk about in this podcast, it's the Spanish Civil War. We do. And we're going to do some more of that. Yes. Tonight. Or today, or whenever you listen to this podcast, with my number 68, the 2001 Devil's Backbone, written by Guillermo del Toro and directed by Guillermo del Toro, co-written by David Muñoz and Antonio Trasoros. I'm sorry about my destruction of your name. (laughs) Uh, It is the story of Carlos, an orphan, who, during... The, near the end of the Spanish Civil War uh, is in a orphanage and starts seeing visions of a deceased orphan, Santi, who has become a ghost. And there is a ghost story in there, but mostly this movie is great because of how incredible for me of a, at, at the age of 14, 15 when I saw this, mm-hmm. of an allegory it was. An allegory of war and the senselessness of war told un- against the backbone of a horror story. I think I've mentioned a lot of times on this podcast that I find horror always intriguing when it's not Pet Cemetery, uh, <laughs> because of the way it's more brashly able to and raw in its ability to kind of talk about themes. Mm-hmm. It's It's not... There's there's a lot less pretense. It's it's more in your face, and this is a movie that is one hundred percent in your face about its themes and about the discussion of the Spanish Civil War. Well, it's, yeah. it's a it's a topic that Guillermo del Toro. It's fucking falling out of the sky. Yeah, the film opens with that falling bomb over against the narration, which one hundred percent is thematically tied to the endless cycle, the eternal recurrence that is war. Um, the unexploded bomb in the center of the orphanage is just a constant reminder of the death that could come in a second that they stare away from. 
which happened as Franco's forces were raging through Spain. You can even hear on the radio, um, as Franco's forces take over Catalonia, you know, everyone ignoring it. Everyone ignoring the unexploded bomb. And this ghost story that's happening is good. It's interesting. It's it's Guillermo del Toro leaning into his fantasy. Uh But it is how, for me, the reason it's pivotal is it's such an early example for me of of a ghost story of a horror movie dealing with a much greater topic dealing with a much more significant social topic Mm -hmm. um obviously an historical element at that time we were not in the midst of a war at this point in american history or world history there was no significant crisis this was right before almost everything kind of imploded yeah i I think that's an interesting uh, it's an interesting piece to this movie as well in the sense that when they talk about the conflict and they talk about the war um it's isolated it's just this war and they talk about like maybe the british and the french will get in soon and help them um fight against franco but they don't because the british and the french are going to go fight hitler and like however many months it is from from this moment yeah exactly or have been engaged in fighting aspects of of hitler's regime for for a while um on very you know smaller fronts um whatever um yeah, there's like these little pockets of isolation and they just kind of keep narrowing and narrowing and narrowing until you get to this, like, just to these boys, like this, the relationship between these boys. And not just that, the rela- all the relationships. I think, um, you know, when, when Dr. Cesar's, uh, you know, the Federico Lupa character kind of says the poem. Um, the Tennyson poem? Yeah. You know, like, it, it kind of shows how worn down everyone's become. The The... The fact where he talks about there is no hereafter, mm-hmm. you know, like like how they tried to ignore it, shown perfectly where there's the discussion of the war on the radio, but it's kind of coming in and out, and he hits it to change it to the music. These people try to ignore mm-hmm. this gigantic elephant in the center of the room, but it <clears throat> it alters their characters. Well, they just keep thinking that if they can't ignore it, then it'll just it'll just wash over them. And they don't have to think about it. Um, but then there's all these things that keep dragging them back into having to think about it. And even when they think that they can escape it, it's just another example of how they're trying to avoid like what's going to happen to them or what might happen to them or what might really happen to them or what life is really going to be like. And they just decide to run instead of confront whatever, you know, there may be to confront. And all these small fires, change everybody mm-hmm. you know it's it is a hundred percent a movie about this cycle about this endless cycle of war and nonsense and, and 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 the worthlessness of of that state and the attempt to bury it and move on with your life but no matter how hard you bury it it is there it is the bomb in the center of the courtyard it is the ticking yeah. Um, the, the, the Hitchcockian ticking bomb. Um, and it is that constant reminder that, that buries in these characters. That's what I find interesting. Is, is for how blunt this movie is, there is some subtleties to like the, the, the changing of the characters within it. There is that kind of like loss of hope and, and the increased aggression, the increased sort of... I, I 
not, not ideologies and how the characters ap- approach everything in the world. That's because of this enormous burden that no matter how hard you try to to get rid of it, oh. it's always there. Right. I mean, I've always I've I hadn't seen this movie in a while until I saw it. Um, I hadn't week. seen this movie until I was since I was fifteen. Oh really? Yeah. Oh wow. Um, it just stuck with me for that. Long. Sure. Yeah. Well, that's. I mean, that's why it's here. Um, I like to think of the bomb as like the sun, and everything else that's happening in the orphanage is kind of like the solar system that just it. revolves around it, and no one really talks about it, and they kind of take it for granted that it's just kind of just there. But they, it's it is always there, and they hide behind it, and they talk to it. And every time they have to go out into, like, the courtyard, they have to confront it. Like, there isn't any situation when they're in the courtyard where somebody doesn't interact with the bomb at, on some level. Um, and I find that, I mean, that, that's a really interesting, that's a really interesting thing that Del Toro keeps doing. I mean, Del Toro is a, a, kind of a master filmmaker, so, um, I mean, even when he makes weird choices, like, the blood that is pouring from Santi's head all the time. Kind of felt like we talked about that's, in Lord that's of the kind Rings. Of, like that's you... kind of that Kronos kind of feel. T- it's definitely that carryover from his more visceral sort of horror they had in Kronos and had right. in earlier features. Um, but he didn't have to. I mean, he did it because he could do it. Kind of like we talked about in Lord of the Rings where like special effects had gotten to a certain point, so they just decided to do it, everything. Um, but it didn't need it. I mean, the ghost was fairly scary without blood just kind of pouring from his head all the time. Um, and I wondered a lot watching it now through the lens of like having to do this podcast, if the blood, the constant pouring of blood was just another metaphor for something like it's, you know, there's even in death, you can't stanch the bleeding. You know what I mean? Like you're just kind of always bleeding. Like you're always hemorrhaging your life force. Um, like the war is just kind of sucking it out of you, whether you are, you know, dead or alive, it's just going to take what it needs from you forever. No. Yeah. The one thing I've always wondered though, is, is the, the Jacanto story, the, the Jacinto, Jacinto story. Um, my name, for some reason, my brain does not allow me it's to not, like not Spanish words. It's not like. Language that isn't English. <laughs> like I've I've mentioned that I always have these problems that I cannot, for the life of me, I'm going to, on Saturday, a a New Japan Pro Wrestling show at Madison Square Garden, and I'm afraid when I try to like cheer on these wrestlers that I really like, words are going to come out of my mouth that are garbage. And somebody in front of you is going to be like, mm, "Get this what? fucking nerd out of here! He doesn't know anything." Um. But that, that entire overall trick story, like, is is there a bigger purpose to it? To what story? Like, like the fact that he, when he dies in the end, kind of weighted down by the gold. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I think there's something there with greed, but I, I don't see it. I don't, I don't know if it's just there for it the ghost story, or it is there a, a, a sort of subtext to that? In relation to the people trying to profit off of the yeah, fight between the Republicans a, and the... I don't think it's a profit thing. I think it was more related to the idea of taking something. So if I had to guess, I would say that Santi represented, um, you know, those fighting against Franco and Jacinto represented like a Franco thing. Where you're going to take and take and take and take, 
but eventually we're going to get to you. You know what I mean? And I think the idea that you can read aspects of his ultimate, like the moments before his death, when they're just kind of like sticking him with the sticks. You know what I mean? They're not killing him, but they're just going to stick him. They're going to stick him until he ultimately gets so far that he dies. Um, I mean, you could boil that down to saying, like, this isn't going to last forever. That there's something... The boys know something that everybody else doesn't. And that this is going to stink for a while, but it's not going to be forever. There's a way that to come back from here. There's a way to make this right. There's a way for this to balance again. Instead of it just being, you know, bombs just being dropped on orphanages randomly in the night forever. Or, you know, people being shot in the head, you know, in the street just casually. Um... You know, well, there's I, that. If I, I, if I had to guess at something, it would be that. Well, there's that that that, that underlying current too of of trying to shield children from from the violence going on around. Even though it's right there in the center, and you know every person that tries to do good in this dies. You know, and and regardless of their attempts, they they were unsuccessful. Well, because Which nobody's is, honestly trying to. The only person that's honestly trying to do good, I think, is Carlos. Everyone else is doing good for, like, other reasons. Yeah, that's, that's fair. Um, so, like, you know, the doctor loves the woman. Uh, Carmen. Carmen. Carmen has just, has human needs. And I think that's, I think sex is a really interesting way of, of exemplifying the idea that humans need things. Um, and it's not just food. It's, it's, you know, the ability to relate to another human. It's, mm the ability to confront a human on a different level other than war. You know what I mean? It's almost like a, you know, you, the stupid phrase, make love, not war. It's, it's like the opposite side of that. Like, war, life is just war now, but people need to start, you know, banging it out. Yeah. Um, I don't know, it's really interesting. It's not my favorite Del Toro movie, obviously. No, not, I think it's interesting. not my favorite Del Toro movie. I think it's not my favorite Del Toro Spanish Civil War movie. <laughs> it's almost like we'll talk about that movie again. It's funny though because I was just watching Hellboy, um, the know, original or the Golden original. Army, and I watch Gold. I'll watch Golden Army too. I love Golden Army. Um, A little little spoiler as to what movie you might be reviewing next week. They not on our list. It's so. I mean, one of the reasons that I hate The Shape of Water so much is that he has been doing this same stuff for 20 fucking years. And the thing that the thing that bugs me about Shape of Water is is there is a fine layer of sediment as it were. And I want to say griminess, but a fine layer of, of haze uh-huh. in Devil's Backbone Bands Labyrinth. We can just, you know, awkwardly mention that. Um where He's so close to the material that it's it's not dirty. It's not like not clean. It's just it just has this rawness to it. it has this urgency mm. to it, and so there isn't a lot. There isn't as much consideration for crafting a crafting your story around your themes. You know, the story in Devil's Backbone is is there. It's it's not heaved upon by you know by inter 
locking and interweaving your themes into it. It just tells you the story mm-hmm. and the themes are right there on top of it because he feels an, an urgency to tell you that. Well, and the same thing with, with uh, Pan's Labyrinth. Pan's Labyrinth is, is much more eloquent in the way it does it. Whereas everything in Shape of Water, all that kind of like anti-war or, or, or the cries against you know the, the backwardsness of, of mid-century America or, or the mid-century world feels so inauthentic it feels so so articulate that it comes off as utterly fabricated. Well, because I mean, it's fabricated too. If you've if you've paid attention to Del Toro, I'm not saying that like everybody should. If you're going to see The Shape of Water, you should have seen all of Del Toro's no. films. Um, but if you had, you would have noticed that all of the production design has been done in all of his other movies. That like the character design of the the. You know, the sea monster, whatever it is, is just Abe Sapien, you know, just a little... And the jokes, the jokes were apparent when it was like, is this Abe, is this a Hellboy prequel? Yeah. Um, It's all just, it's all stuff that he's done, he's mined to a much greater effect in his other films. And for a purpose, like, in The Devil's Backbone, some of the... So when he's under the when he's under the orphanage where Santi is, where that cistern thing is, where the where, where the water is, all of that stuff looks exactly like from a production design standpoint, from a from an architectural standpoint, like the place where the sea guy is in the shape of water. Yeah, it's, it just it's looks obviously exactly like it. the same minus a few million dollars in production design. But when you have yeah ex- yeah exactly well so, but that speaks to the rawness thing that you're that you're speaking to. But when you and the Devil's Backbone, there because of the title, because of the thing that the Doctor shows Carlos um, about the you know the aborted fetuses and things like that, um, because of the nature of what's happening, when he goes down there, it has an underworld quality. There's a dead person down there. It has an underworld quality to it. You know what I mean? Um, so there's a haze to it too, which I like. And the haze, I think, is almost there to kind of cover up the somewhat shitty ghost special effects sure, at times, sure, sure. but it it makes it feel a lot more real. But it's related to the story. Where and to the themes and even to the metaphors, where the shape of water, it's just like, well this just looks like this. But why? So this is just this is what it looks like. Because everything I do looks like this. Yeah, but how come in this movie this looks like this? Well, it just is what it looks like. It's like well, this is interesting, too, because like, I remember when I initially saw Shape of Water. At first, I kind of like took it to be a love letter to film of the mid-century. It's a love letter to his own films. Yeah, but it, it felt like originally like a love letter to the films that he would have grown up on you know, in, in Mexico. But it's not. It's, it's definitely trying to make the same points about war and peace and pacifism that these movies were, or at least... Not similar, but the points that they were trying to make just more, you know, much more of a facade. Um, but it's, it's it's not a love letter. It's it doesn't have any of that. So everything feels staged. Like Shape of Water yes, has a very staged, very staged feel to it. Like th- that street that she lives on um, feels it looks like a soundstage. And I thought at first it was intentional, but as you watch it. Like the second or third time, it's not. There's really no reason for it to be, especially when a lot of those other scenes aren't. And it's unfortunate that I think Del Toro's at his best 
when either he's given something so fantastical, um, but so light, like Hellboy, that he's just able to lean into his character creation. That's why I'm excited for um, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. He's not, you know, directing it. He kind of helped with the story, but he's, you know, he's definitely going to be a hands-on producer. You can kind of see in those creature effects where he's doing something fun. He does a lot of great work there. Uh-huh. Um, like the creature effects and especially Golden Army are great. Or well, yeah. Gold, Golden Ar- it's Golden Army. Yeah. Golden Army. I keep thinking Golden Compass. Um, <laughs> Those creature effects are not great. <laughs> that did win the visual effects Oscar, didn't it? Though? If it did, it was wrong because those effects <laughs> look it, like ass. I think it may have. I have to look that um, up. But, um, but they've, been, when, they've been making polar bears look way better since. But in this, there's, you know, it doesn't like, or when he's doing something like this, our, our Pan's Labyrinth, which Pan's Labyrinth is kind of like the nice duality and mixing the two. Um, it it doesn't feel staged. It feels raw. You can kind of overlook the the mishaps in, in production design or or the kind of like hokiness of it at points. Um, Kronos even too. Yeah. Um, but when he's trying to like activate on all levels, he just implodes. Well, it's, it's when he. Which is you know to be fair. We have one example so far. He has, well, but I mean, we we haven't talked about Pacific Rim, but maybe Pacific Rim doesn't count. It, one visual effect, Golden Compass, one visual effect, which is a way. fucking travesty. I mean, I don't know what else is nominated, but that's bananas, because <laughs> Golden Compass is terrible on every level. Um, yeah, I mean, it's funny because The Shape of Water and Devil's Backbone, I think, are really interesting places to start because The Devil's Backbone is liter- is literally just an honest is an honest expression of an idea moving from like inception to creation. You know what I mean? Whereas The Shape of Water was kind of labored over in terms of how can I win awards with this movie. And he wasn't thinking about winning anything with The Devil's Backbone. It was just his how do I execute my vision yeah and that's the thing and so like we just we talked about spirit of the beehive you know i don't know how long ago that was um he's made homages to movies before like aspects of the devil's backbone are homages to spirit of the beehive if not if, if even if it's only just the color of the first couple of scenes i mean it's just clear that's what it is so he doesn't when he wants to when he's firing on all cylinders, like you said, he his style just inherently pays homage to his his inspirations and to um, the things that moved him as like a, an early film goer. It's just when he tries to kind of just fucking jam those things into a movie that you end up with something like The Shape of Water, which doesn't make any sense. Which is like, I would say a similar filmmaker on a much lesser of a talent level, um, but still talented is something like Sam Raimi, where he tries to like kind of pay homage a lot of times to like what he's doing, but I think he does it just because that's what he feels comfortable with and he's trying to tell a story, but then when he tries to fire on all cylinders and do an homage to himself or try to do the, his thing He does on, like homages to himself also. But like when he's trying to do that has the inherent purpose of what his narrative or his story, like right. Drag Me to Hell, it just implodes in on itself. It You... It feels like a caricature. And that's the problem with Shape of Water is it feels like such a caricature of Guillermo del Toro. Whatever happened to Alison Lohman? That's a good question. Alison Lohman's probably asking herself that right now. Where am I? <laughs> I'm Alison Lohman. 
<laughs> what happened to me? Well, we're, 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 actually, that's a good question. I don't know, Mario. Um, uh, but uh, Drag Me the Hell happened to Alison Lohman. I guess that was the last major movie she was in. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah, she had Vatican tapes, Urge, and Officer Down after that. That's it. Well, that's <laughs> Maybe she was it. actually dragged to hell. Maybe. Um, I really like... I, Devil, I mean, Devil's Backbone's a good... Good flick though. No, it's 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 earnest. It's it's and I say earnest so much on this podcast. It's almost like my new competent directing. Um, Earnestly directed. Yeah, Jesus. Um, it, it's it's raw. It, it, it it's 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 a it captures the the perfect aspects of horror for me. Um, it is horror can be used for a lot, and a lot of times it's not, which is fine. Like if you're just doing a funhouse sort of horror movie, like it. It works great. Or even like Us. Oh, yeah. Or I mean, us. Ignoring the po- the politics of Us, Us just works as like a fun horror movie. Yeah, exactly. Or, or something like the Scream series or whatnot. Um, yeah, no, Us is a better example. <laughs> um, <laughs> but also, because it's so devoid of the need for deeper themes or deeper thoughts or complex narratives, horror in its very nature... Even more so, I think, than comedy can be so simple, mm. so base in yeah, what it's doing. I agree. That it, it, you can make the themes the central core of your story. And Devil's Backbone is that. You know, Devil's Backbone is a movie where the story takes such a back step to, to the film, to, to, to the themes. And, and, you know, Pan's Labyrinth, which is a fantasy horror, but more, much more of a fantasy, um, it can't. You know, like I don't think fantasy allows you to do that. I don't think other kind of even genres allow you to do that. You have to incorporate your themes into your narrative, and that's right. why I always find horror to be fun. In the fact that like horror is just like Plato, you can kind of do with with it what you want. The philosopher. Yeah. Not not the the stuff you eat. Oh wait, also you can eat Plato too. I eat we should go back in time, get Plato philosopher, bring him forward in time, let him see like Times Square for a minute, and then just eat him. And then we become Wendigos. That'd be good. I've always wanted to be a Wendigo. Yeah, we'd be cool two Wendigos. We'd be hard you know, to see. In, do you know who else in was a Wendigo woods. in the game Until Dawn? In the in one of the alternate endings to Until Dawn, Rami Malek. So we'll become a Wendigo and we'll win an Oscar undeservedly. That'd be great. Fascinating. Fascinating connection, Mario. I know, I did it. Did it again. You're Bring just, it all full circle. Yeah, it's just it's going here. It's all by coming episode, together. By episode 13, I'm just going to be mentioning random facts about nonsense that nobody gives a shit about. <laughs> Related to Rami Malik and Wendigos. Um, or as I like to call it, Wendigos. Wendigos. You get a Baconator made out of people. Ugh, gross. I haven't had a Baconator in a long time. Oh, good for you. You should not ever have a Baconator. I remember... <laughs> what, a, what a way to end this episode. Um, <laughs> I remember when the Baconator first came out, I got so fucking excited because it was just like cheese, bacon, beef, and mushrooms. And like the mushrooms were a big part of that Baconator. And I was like, yeah. And I had it. And I had like a second one like a few weeks later. And I was like, what am I doing with myself? And that would like started out the trend of me like not really eating much fast food. I say as we have... Pizza and wings, so that's not really fast food, but but like major corporate fast food. So I thank you, Wendy's yeah. Baconator, did I ever for tell you, giving me on a slightly healthier path, I did, guess. Did I ever tell you the story about when me and my buddies, when we were in high school, we did um, the 
what we called the Wendy's Triple Challenge. No. And we all went to Wendy's and tried to see who could eat the most triple cheeseburgers. It seems like the worst idea. I ate three triple cheeseburgers in a sitting. In you, one sitting. Did you lose? Yeah, the winner ate five triple cheeseburgers oh in one God. sitting. Uh, how was his funeral? <laughs> he said that yet. Yet being the keyword. Soon. I don't know, soon. How, I don't know soon. how healthy he is. Soon being, soon I being like the answer. A, I feel like that had to have been a turning point in all of our, the, you know, in the, the story that is written about our health. Like, over time, that'll come up. Like, <laughs> I really, on I this really day, hope, they ate three triple I really hope as you're eating those cheeseburgers, somewhere in the distant future, Richard Dreyfus was narrating about how, like, one of you stepped into a fast food restaurant and got stabbed. I'm going to be honest with you. The, the first two went down fine, but the first bite of that third one was a lot of work. Because you're a lot of work. Well, because your first to your brain, your first bite, your brain's like, yeah, I'm going to store all this, this these calories and fat for. A I'm going to store day. all these calories in my brain. And the second bite, and the second one, you're like, yeah, this is good. And your third, your body was like, I'm go- no. Well, the first one, the, yeah, the first one is activating all this of episode's those. still happening. Guys. Yeah, no, it totally is. The first one is activating all those like. You know, addictive neurons in your brain. It's like, this is awesome. Keep doing this. Just dopamine and serotonin. And then the second one is all adrenaline. Because you just plowed through one triple cheeseburger. You're like, I can eat 50 of these. And then after the second one, as it's kind of digesting, and it's kind of up to your chest, like your 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 torso is packed with Wendy's. Well, um, what do you even call it? Beef. Like, We're not even sure if that's meat. I just, that's why I said it's Wendy's. <laughs> yeah. Just with food. In, uh, so the third bite Quotation is just marks. like, oh, oh yeah, no, 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 I can't eat any, I can't eat any more of these. And then shame crops in because all of your friends are eating their third one as well, and you're just like, oh, I guess I have to eat one. I want that, them to all be friends. And with that's me. how Tom learned about peer pressure. <laughs> I actually, in terms of eating contests, if we're talking about that, I once won second place at a grocery store. For eating the most watermelon against a bunch of adults, and I was nine years old. I was very proud of myself. How much watermelon did you eat? Uh, it was like half a watermelon. It was, see, so you had five minutes, and I ate half a watermelon in five minutes. Is that a lot? I felt, I felt like a lot. I, they might have let me win. Like, might have let me get second because I was eight. Are you having an opinion right now? No, I thought about was this. Was your whole times. life based on winning this, <laughs> this contest? The first time I ever lost my the first time I ever lost my virginity, the when I lost my virginity, I I did it by saying I got second place in a watermelon eating <laughs> contest. And they're like, "How old were you?" It's like nine, and they're like, "Oh man, eight. I was eight. eight. You must be a if she, if some I was, kind of man." If I was, if I said nine, they would she would have been like, "I wonder how much watermelon you could eat now. If you could eat that much at eight. Yeah, my first time having sex was real weird. So. <laughs> It involves multiple watermelons. And none of them were seedless. You can email us at pivotalfilmpodcast at gmail.com <laughs> or tweet us at twitter.com slash filmpivotal. Yeah. Maybe, maybe next week tweet us. Um, you, can, you can email us at this our Joe Biden. This is our Joe Biden moment, isn't it? Yeah, this is it. Um, you can tweet, uh, tweet us. You can tweet us. But you can also send us an email at pivotalfilmpodcast at gmail.com. Th- thank you, Tom, for reiterating the thing I already said. You can tweet us, or you can go to our website, pivotalfilm.com, and tweet us. Is it pivotalfilm.com or pivotalfilmpodcast.com? Pivotalfilm.com. Why do I keep thinking it's pivotalfilmpodcast.com? I don't think I ever go to our website. You can tweet us, um, or you can s- <laughs> or you can send us a message at pivotalfilm.com. 
or see links to our episodes and uh, lists of the beers that we drank and lists of the movies that are on our lists. And um, you can tweet us. Um, but until then, uh, go see a movie. Preferably not Pet Cemetery. Um, if you do, <laughs> go drink a beer afterwards. And if you saw Shazam and liked it, you should tell us. Just so Tom will get mad at you, even though he hasn't seen it yet. I'm just not watching a Zachary Levi movie. I'm sorry. I just <laughs> refuse. <laughs> refuse. I also refuse to see DC movies, but that's or post Batman, post Nolan Batman DC movies. I'm not doing it. You didn't see Man of Steel. No, I think Superman sucks. I've never seen like a non-Christopher Reeve Superman movie. Like a Shane Xavier would be disappointed. Would they? WrestleMania weekend. Go see WrestleMania, guys. Have fun. And we'll talk to you next week.